I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome, and thanks for joining us today. I just finished talking with Janet Vertesi about her new book, Seeing Like a Rover, How Robots, Teams, and Images Craft Knowledge of Mars. This came out in 2015 with the University of Chicago Press. Now, this is an ethnography based on two years of immersive work of the Mars rover exploration teams. So it takes us into the Mars rover mission, specifically looking at the teams of scientists and engineers that were working on spirit and opportunity. And it looks at the ways that, at the same time, the crafting and the practice of images went hand in hand with the crafting and the practice of community and teamwork consensus collaboration. So it's a history of and with images and representation, and it's also a history that binds that deeply and intimately into the work of a particular kind of organization. Now, it's an extensive interview, so I'll keep this relatively brief and just say it's a really, really fascinating study for anybody interested in visuality and visual studies as it intersects with science studies, or really anyone who's interested in Mars and robots. It's super fascinating, um, and I hope you have a chance to get your hands on a copy and to look also at the many, 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 many really beautiful images that University of Chicago Press and Janet were able to incorporate into the text and the fabric of the book. Thanks very much for listening, as ever, and I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Janet Vertesi about her new book, Seeing Like a Rover. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Janet, and thanks very much for making time to talk with me today. I'm really looking forward to it. Thanks so much, Carla. So let's start, um, as is kind of traditional for the channel, by just talking a little bit about how you came to work in STS. So what brought you to the field? Why STS? Gosh, you know... I must be one of those very rare people that actually has all of my um, higher level degrees in STS. I started actually as an undergrad um, and I was taking this class at, uh, at UBC actually where I did my, my first degree um, and I took a class with Steve Straker who was a historian of 17th century optics and he taught in a program called Arts One which was this really exciting kind of opportunity to have a liberal arts education on campus. You know I teach on that in that program right now. <laughs> Oh, really? Oh, yes. excellent. Oh, man, it was, it was amazing. It was so great, and he was so wonderful. That at the end of the year, I went up to him and I said, look, um, what else do you teach? Because I'd love to take another class from you. And he said, well, I teach this class in, in history and philosophy of science. And I was like, huh, well, I like history and I like science. Like, not so sure about philosophy, but I'll give it a shot, you know? <laughs> so I signed up for an introductory uh, HPS class in my second year, and that was it. I was hooked. Um, at the time, you could only do a minor in science studies there, but I did uh, enthusiastically and uh, went on to do a master's in history and philosophy of science at Cambridge. And then I did my PhD in science and technology studies at Cornell. So I've been STS the whole way. I mean, since I was, what, like 19 or something. <laughs> so the better part of my, certainly the whole of my adult life. Um, and I'd always had an interest, a passion for history and um, and also for understanding the natural world. And it was just so amazing to me to get to study both of those things at the same time. Wow. So that's what brought me to SES. Wow. I love it when we can start off with love for UBC and Steve Straker <laughs> and Archman. And this is just, this is... Well, it's just, I always, I always remind myself also as an instructor, like, you can change 
students' lives. It happened to me, right? It happened to me in my first year um, that taking a class in something like this would just completely transform what I thought I wanted to do with my life and expose me to a topic that, I mean, no one talks about STS in high school. You don't know that that's something that you can do. You don't know that you can do history of science or history of medicine. But to be exposed to that in, you know, in an undergraduate degree can really have profound effects on people's lives. Yeah, well, I'm going to just be doing my happy dance over here. So the book that we're talking about today is an ethnography of the Mars rover mission, and it Mm -hmm. takes us into the practices involved in working with the two robotic explorers, Spirit and Opportunity. Now, the book focuses in particular on the visuality of the mission, and it explores how, in your words, scientists and engineers on Earth work with the digital images that are sent by the robots, and they do this both to make sense of Mars and also to work together in order to explore it. This is a book that was based on two years of immersive ethnography from 2006 to 2008. And we'll talk about all of that in the hour to come. Now, how did you come to this particular topic as the focus of your research? Well, there's a long version and a short version of the story, but I guess the slightly longer version is um, I had been studying relationships between art and science for quite a long time, perhaps unsurprisingly, again, due to Straker and his interest in optics. And uh, um, I'd done a bunch of work on 17th century lunar astronomy, uh, particularly the the debates between Hevelius and Hooke over telescopic sites. I have a paper on on that in BJHS. And... um, Another paper on mapping and naming the moon in the 17th century, particularly Hevelius in a fight with uh, Riccioli, who was a, um, an astronomer, a Jesuit astronomer. And so I was very interested in what happens in these moments when new, particularly visual technologies and ways of knowing, but also ways of practice and ways of representing come into scientific fields. And of course, the fight with Hevelius and Hooke is about what's the responsible way to observe using a telescope? What's the right way to be the scientist observing the heavens now that you have this like extra help of the telescope and you don't have to do the whole like taconic thing where you're up, you know, at all hours of the night working with this very clumsy kind of apparatus to do measurements of where your stars are. So um, it was while I was at Cornell um, that I met members of the Mars Exploration Rover mission team. And at that point, um, the, the mission had moved into its remote operations phase. And what that means is the scientists and engineers weren't working together all together at JPL anymore. They had all dispersed back to their home institutions. And it turned out that the, the camera team was situated at Cornell next door to the STS building. Um, wow. So I managed to meet the scientists involved in that mission. And it occurred to me, it's exactly the same kinds of questions. Just now they were working with a robot and with digital cameras and digital images. And the same kinds of tensions around how do you do this responsibly? How do you represent um, a heavenly body in a responsible way, particularly given the malleability of these images, the incredible malleability of these images, which gives them their power, but also gives them a sense of suspicion. So if you know that you're constantly Photoshopping your images, um, how do you do that in a way that guarantees that what you're seeing is true, right? Quote unquote true. So for me, the ability to move, and this was what was so great about STS, was I'd been reading history of science and reading sociology of science together in my whole academic career. So the ability to to move from a space where I was, you know, observing at a distance of 300 years, 350 years from my, my subjects to being in the room 
when a scientist turns to another and goes, what are we seeing in this picture? Like, what is this, right? What is going on on Mars? Was this really amazing opportunity? So that's when I made the made the jump from the 17th century to the 21st. And um, again, because I think the kinds of issues that there's that the rover scientists were grappling with and had routinized as part of their science, as part of their work on another planet. Um, are issues that resonate across the history of science, across space and time, particularly in the Western scientific context. How do you how do you know what you know? How do you know what you know using visual technologies and using representational technologies? And so that's what brought me first uh, into the mission with great great enthusiasm. <laughs> so, how did you manage the translation from dissertation? To book, were there any uh, major changes or even notable minor changes um, that transformed the way you were thinking about the kinds of arguments that you were making, um, the way the the shape of the project looked, or or otherwise? Were there any kind of major notable changes um, that happened from one stage to the other? You know, I actually rewrote it entirely twice between dissertation and book, um, which. You know, looking back, I probably didn't need to do that. It it looks quite similar to the dissertation. But what happened in the meanwhile was that following the dissertation, actually while I was doing the dissertation research, I realized I was actually researching possibly two books Mm -hmm. where one was about representation and another was about teamwork and about organizations. And it turned into something of an organizational ethnography. So while I was in the field, I wrote a grant um, and got a grant successfully to go study another spacecraft mission team. So I actually put the whole dissertation project aside for about two years to go back into the field and work with a different spacecraft team at NASA that had a very, very, very different way of operating. And how that helped was it it decentered my my view um, a lot, actually, to move outside of the way the Mars rover team does things and actually understand what's constant about how this is done in planetary science and then what was actually quite unique to the rover context. And the thing I hadn't really grappled with until I wrote the book version was the organizational context. And so what what happened between dissertation and book was a rapid retooling in organizational sociology, um, was an entirely different uh, organizationally based ethnography that is, gave me a comparative view of the, of the rover team in particular. Um, and those things aren't necessarily visible, but they were a really important part of how it went from dissertation to book. Great. Thank you so much. That's actually really, really interesting for understanding, you know, the craft of how an object like this gets made. And Um, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to actually bring us into the book. Um, Speaking of how um, the craft of an object gets made, was there anything else that you wanted to add though? Uh, It was mostly that I think the path from dissertation to book is, um, is different for each person. And there's certainly a way of doing it where you could just go find and replace and make everything that says in this dissertation, I will to everything in this, in this book, I will, you know, well, I <laughs> this hope is, nobody does that. There are different kinds of books, right? There are different kinds of dissertations and different kinds of books that are just doing very different kinds of work. Um, and so some, mm-hmm. you know, I think it, it's just a decision that all of us have to attend to when we're at the point of moving from one, stage to another deciding, you know, did the, did the kind of work that the dissertation do, um, 
is that the kind of work that I want the book to do? Do I need to do any more research, et cetera? And so, you know, sometimes it takes longer and sometimes not so long, but it's different for everybody. I think also when you do ethnography, your body is your instrument and any opportunity that you can have to calibrate that instrument will allow you to more faithfully represent the phenomena that you're studying. And sometimes that's distance, sometimes it's physical and emotional and temporal distance from those things that you're studying. Sometimes it's the ability to jump in and see something else, which will give you a totally new perspective on your topic. Um, but that playing with that concept of the ethnographer's body was, was very helpful for me as just trying to get a sense of, you know, I'm working through this stuff almost like a computer or a scientific instrument would be. So and to give yourself enough time to do that processing is, I think, really important. That's probably true for historians, too. I think so. <laughs> so, so this is a book that's very much um, aiming to have a kind of um, a contribution to a general understanding of images and image making and the practice of imaging in science, but it focuses on a very particular case study to do that. And the first chapter takes us right into this context in which you um, performed this ethnography, and this is the daily planning meetings of the rover mission. Now, you bring us into the science and operations working group, and this is the group that was making decisions about what the rover should do the next day. You talk here about the kind of ritual character of these meetings. I think one of the people you talk to describes what's happening um, in terms of the ritual of the meetings as a finely tuned little dance. And what you bring us into in this chapter um, is the fact that the work of managing the rover is also very much the work of managing the team. Now, you describe the meeting in terms of accounting, right? All of the activities of the mission must be very carefully planned according to a budget of this and power and time. But there are a lot of different interests that the different um, people at the table, scientists, engineers, are bringing to that accounting. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that emerges in this chapter is the importance of consensus, team consensus among team members um, in sort of making this all work. So maybe let's start there. Can you um, talk sure. a little bit about the importance of consensus here in terms of what you're arguing in this part of the book? Yeah, absolutely. Um, usually when I, when I describe working on a spacecraft team to outsiders, I describe it as like being on a bus with 150 other people and everyone wants the steering wheel. <laughs> and maybe there's also only one camera. And so what that means is every team has to kind of come up with its own little micro-political set of decisions about, like, how are they going to even make the decision about where they're going to drive, where they're going to fly, what they're going to look at, what they're going to image. And because the spacecraft only has so many uh, bytes in its memory, it only has so much ability to transmit that data back to Earth in a particular amount of time. And on Mars, because it's a solar-powered vehicle, the rovers are um, are constantly beholden to how much dust is in the atmosphere or how sunny it is, right? In order to in order to get the power they need to proceed. So what that means is, is that the, the team around the robot has to take all of those things into account in deciding which observations, which investigations, which instruments the robot is going to use that day. What makes this team so um, unusual is that it is a consensus-based team. Now, most groups will have some kind of way of making decisions, whether it's through a negotiation or through voting. Or one team even uses software so that they don't have to, <laughs> they can just feed everything into a computer and it's all taken care of. 
The rule for team uses consensus, and what that means for them is unilateral agreement among all members of the team that this is the right thing for the robot to do the next day. So what I found was um, an extraordinary amount of social work that has to go into making sure that everyone is constantly on the same page, making sure that, um, that consensus is shepherded from the very beginning, from the outset. Um, so that people arrive to the meeting on the same page and they leave the meeting on the same page. Perhaps what's most unusual about this team is that at the end of their meeting, and the meeting lasts only an hour for each robot, when I observed, at the end of the meeting, the chair of the meeting goes around the room and asks everyone on the line, are you happy with the plan? And everybody has to say, yes, I'm happy, before they proceed. Now... <laughs> I suggest you try this at your next like faculty meeting <laughs> or PTA meeting or you know, dinner table, like whatever it is. I mean, when you try that out in an environment that isn't actually consensus oriented, what you realize is how hard it is to get everyone to not only agree, but to affectively state their, uh, their like emotional continued attachment to, to the project. Um, and that exposes basically the work that, that I talk about in this chapter, which is the work of making that collective decision that every single image that those robots take is one that the whole team, or at least representatives of members of the whole team on the teleconference line that day, had to say, yes, I'm happy. And that's down to exactly the framing of the picture, um, how many filters they're going to take it through, how many, uh, what time of day, what's, what's the incident and angle of the sun, what kinds of, what kinds of shadows are going to be in the picture. I mean, all of those things are talked about in advance because the robot doesn't do anything until that team decides that this is exactly what it's going to do. Now those images or those pictures don't just emerge ready-made. There's a very careful, calibration, as you describe it, of these images that has to be made before team members can work with them as artifacts, as scientific artifacts. And the next chapter takes us into this process of calibration and actually into your own participant observation, right, as a member of the calibration team for the pan cam or the panoramic cameras. So let's um, maybe talk a little bit about this. Why do images have to be calibrated before they can be used this way? And what is calibration in this context mean? Um, so calibration has been talked about before in science studies and history of science, um, but largely with instruments that are co-located with the people that are doing the observing. Um, so that is the instrument is right next to you, and you've got a series of things that you're kind of going through in order to make sure that its observations are standardized. Now, of course, if you send those instruments very far away, like um, some of the work on uh, 18th century voyages of discovery, there's always a concern that those instruments might you know, change or something in the, in the context of the voyage. But you want to make sure that there's someone there who can, who can make sure that the instrument is behaving appropriately. Um, when, you're, when your instrument is millions and millions and millions of miles away... <laughs> <laughs> you can't do that before it takes a reading. You have to do it after it takes a reading. So for the cameras, um, what would happen is that the images would come down to Earth, uh, they'd be transmitted in, into Earth, and then they would get transmitted to Cornell, where the calibration facility was. And um, the uh, a series of operators, usually undergraduates, although I signed up as a graduate student to do it as well, 
um, would learn how to figure out how much dust would be affecting the image on any given day, if there were any problems with the camera, if there were any you know stray cosmic rays that hit it that caused an issue or something, and make sure to clean those images so that they could be standardized. And they were standardized to two formats. One is a format um, that is... Uh, that assumes, assumes we know how the camera behaves on Earth, and so we kind of make the camera behave the way that it does on Earth. And another is to look at what's happening on Mars that day and to be able to take out things like, you know, how much dust is in the atmosphere that might be affecting this image or whatever. So, in fact, the calibration happened to two constants. Um, what was interesting about this chapter for me was it, this was the one where I was a participant observer. So most of the time I just sat back and took, took notes and watched meetings. But in this case, this was my contribution back to the team in order to, to facilitate my continued ethnography with them. So I actually had to learn how to see like a calibrator does, how to use these software tools to discipline the camera and to um, discipline the cameras or discipline the images once they came down into something that was standardized. And this brought up for me a lot of issues around how we think about objectivity in the digital age. And obviously, objectivity is something that's been talked about a lot in the history of science. Um, the work of Lorraine Dastin, obviously, and Peter Gallison is incredibly important in this regard. And they have um, varying different notions of how objectivity changes as, in terms of practices and instrumental relations over time. And for me, sitting there with these cameras at a distance of millions of miles, but with these software tools and with these undergraduates <laughs> who had to bring a kind of naive eye, but also a kind of trained eye and had to allow the software to work in kind of this hands-off way, but also kind of had to understand a little bit about what the software was doing, um, allowed me to make some claims about what objectivity might look like in the digital era where we're working with such mixed modes of understandings about what humans and what computers can do. Now, you describe the image data um, that comes out of this calibration and this chapter as drawn as tamed and disciplined. And this actually brings us really nicely into not just the next chapter, but also one of the main analytic contributions of the book. This is the idea of being drawn as. So chapter three looks at the work of crafting images to emphasize particular aspects of the object and its environs, both physical and conceptual. And it does this by developing this drawn as framework. So can you talk a little bit about that for us? For you, um, what does it mean to talk about drawing as, and what are some of the most important aspects of that argument as it's coming up for you um, in this part of the book? Sure. Drawing as is a way to link seeing and representing and seeing again. It's a theory of um, what I often call theory-laden observation and representation. Now, of course, theory-laden observation has been kind of decried in, in science studies for quite a long time because it doesn't seem to take into account the practices of observing, the practices of seeing. Um, and there's a way in which we kind of want to retreat into, into actors' heads to kind of identify where the theory is. In this case... Um, a theory-laden representation is something that we can watch people do. It's an observable practice, and it has observable effects. So 
drawing as is based on Wittgenstein's notion of seeing as, right? Now I see it as a rabbit. Now I see it as a duck. This is what happens when you have ambiguous illustrations like the duck rabbit or the old lady, young lady, or any of those gestalt images, right? Or as Norwood Russell Hansen argued in the 50s, um, this can happen also with people looking at, say, a cathode ray tube and and a physicist knows how to see that as a, a cathode ray tube. They know how to identify it as an object that also its results. Um, so it's based on that notion of seeing as, but it brings in this practical component. So why this is important is because the images that come down from Mars are not only inherently ambiguous, but they can be processed in many, many different ways. And what I observed on the mission was there's no one best picture of Mars. There's lots of different ways of combining and recombining and stretching and changing these images. I'll describe the changing later because they they wouldn't say that they're actually changing. But manipulating these images in order to see different things on a surface. So um, the example that I use of this is an example of a a piece of roughed up soil called Tyrone. Mm Happy to talk about nomenclature later if you're interested. Um, and Tyrone is a is is just a part of soil on Mars where the rover Spirit got stuck, and um, it got stuck because it was a bit of a sand trap, but also because it had had a broken wheel. And um, at that time, the, the rover drivers were driving it back and forth, furiously trying to extract it from this basically you know sand pit in time for it to survive the Martian winter. Um, they managed to get it out. It drove a short distance away. It parked for the whole winter season because Spirit didn't get enough um, solar energy where, where it was located on Mars um, to keep actually doing things during the winter. So it would often just sit, sit still and do scientific observations from sitting still. And they were close enough to Tyrone that they started to take lots of pictures of Tyrone. And they'd taken a lot of pictures while they were trying to extract the robot because they kind of want to know where they're driving. And what they saw was that the robot had inadvertently turfed up this white soil underneath the layer of red soil that we normally associate with Mars. And as they observed it over time, they noticed that the soil was changing in its composition. Now, in order to do this, they had to transform those images of the Martian soil, of Tyrone, over and over and over again. And they had to transform them into three or four really different kinds of representations of the same visual data set. They looked at a histogram of the pixel values. They um, they put it into false color. They put it into an even more crazy kind of false color where you can really see differences between elements in the field, the compositional differences. And that's what allowed them to draw Tyrone as a part of Mars that had a very different kind of soil composition. And in particular, they discovered a composition that was consistent with an ancient hot spring. So that representational work is what I call drawing as. But the reason why that's important is because it isn't just a question of drawing or drawing a theory into an image or drawing it out of an image. It then influences what everybody else sees as well. As soon as the one scientist who was working on Tyrone started to show her pictures to the rest of the team, they saw it too, right? They started to see that white soil too. And then they started to see it everywhere. They went back through all their old images and they're like, oh my gosh, it was there too, it was there too. And they started doing those visual transformations again that would draw that white soil 
into prominence, into salience. It became one of the most important discoveries of the mission. And so the reason why drawing us is important is it brings our attention to this praxeology of, perspe- of, of uh, perception, the, the, the work of being able to see. And then that representational work that enables others to see and forms perhaps something of a visual convention. And one of the themes that actually comes up repeatedly, or one of the phrases, rather, that comes up repeatedly in discussions of drawing as and its implications and its importance in the book is the idea that once um, images are drawn as a particular you know kind of thing, it can't be unseen, right? The scene yeah. can't then be unseen, and that becomes really important and really definitive. Now, one of the ways that um, the scientists are drawing as and the engineers are drawing as is by drawing images of the or drawing rover images rather as maps and the next chapter looks specifically at drawing as maps now it, it extends this treatment and discussion of drawing as to look carefully at the ways that the team members are annotating images and you take us into actually the weekly end of soul Meetings and take us into discussions around spirit and around opportunity, where we see different ways of creating kinds of maps and mapping with these images. Now, when you're talking about opportunity specifically, you talk about the ways that through annotation, interpretations are actually written on the image, right? So annotation really transforms the images into maps by inscribing interpretations onto them. So can you talk a little bit about that? Because that seems to be a really important um, part of what's going on here. Yeah. So um, those kinds of annotations are a form of drawing as largely because what they do, as as you said, is inscribe an interpretation um, of the object onto the image itself so that it continues to be seen and represented that way. The, The chapter about mapping for me was a way of exploring how this representation and visualization process also translated into a form of interaction, specifically interaction with Mars. So the question here is, you know, how does how we visually construe an object, how it's drawn as, affect the way that we interact with it? Um, Or how is it bound up also with the ways that we interact with it? This is also a a question I've explored for some time. I have a paper in Social Studies of Science about the the London Underground map that does the same, has the same kinds of questions. How do these kind of iconic ways of representing that circulate affect the ways in which we have narratives about what it is that we're going to do, how we're going to interact with the object? Um, For the rover team, the way that Mars is mapped is um, specific to how they decide where and how the robot is going to drive. Now, it's important to note that the maps are not... I'm not talking about, like, geological maps where this is the thing that's going to go into the archives and it's the way that we, like, are now going to understand Mars or that it's updating some kind of full-on geological map of Mars. No, I'm talking about a kind of mapping that's specific to rover driving and to scientific investigation. And to that extent, it kind of loops back into the consensus conversation, right? Because the way that they are drawing Mars as a map for rover interaction is a way in which they're drawing out the the process of consensus formation about where they're going to go. So there's examples about... um, decision-making about, say, spirit exploring home plate, which is a, a region adjacent to Tyrone. Again, <laughs> this is a team that loves baseball. Um, they're always, always making comments about baseball. And as a Canadian, I found it really hard to follow. <laughs> but anyway, 
Um, so there's this region that is the is the hot spring region, and as they were trying to you know explore home plate, they were on the one hand trying to make representations of what they thought was was there, like what the sulfur um, components of the soil were, and um, where there was silicon, or sil- different kinds of silica that were embedded in the soil. Um, but they were also drawing annotations to uh, to serve as like a reminder of the things that they discussed and the things that they decided. Um, and there's some very specific, you know, there was a, there was an example where um, somebody put up an image where they'd annotated it, saying, you know, this is what we want to do and this is what we want to look at. And another scientist was like, yeah, but so that that picture shows what you want to do, but it doesn't show what we decided we were going to do or what we all want to do. <laughs> and so the, the important thing about these annotations is that they show what the team has decided collectively through consensus and what they've decided they want to do next. Right. And there's a whole chapter, actually, um, chapter five, that we won't talk about um, in detail, but that really explores the ways that these maps are not just depicting Mars, right, but they're also depicting um, or at least are the result of a particular kind of collectivity. And you take us into this process of generating consensus and also take us into some examples of what happens um, when there are disputes, right, when there are kinds of distinctions, mm-hmm. disciplinary and otherwise, that arise over these images and over, you know, what, what to do with these rovers, where to send them, um, where should spirit spend its third winter on Mars, things like this. And you take us into the practices of resolving these disputes um, and, you know, negotiating the annotations and the mapping um, along, along the way of doing that. So one of the things that comes up um, in terms of uh, trying to resolve these disputes, and one of the important factors that you mention repeatedly in these conversations is a concern over the health of the vehicle and a concern over the potential death of these rovers, right? Now, what could that mean, right? The health of a rover, the death of a rover. And this actually brings us really nicely into the next chapter, chapter six. Now, chapter six considers the embodied practices that are involved in seeing like a rover. And so we'll talk about this transition from drawing as and seeing as to seeing like in a moment. But let's start actually at the end of this chapter. And rather than um, talking about life, let's talk about death. You bring us into um, this really fascinating robot funeral at the end of this chapter. Oh, man, yeah. Why don't we kind of move up from there? But can you uh, talk a little bit about that? What's going on? First of all, what does it mean um, for you and in your experience here to, you know, to have something like a robot funeral? And what's important um, for us to understand about what's happening there in order to kind of maybe um, get a sense of what's important to you about this chapter? Sure. Um, when spirit died, and it took a very long time for spirit to die because it, it got trapped. They spent a year trying to get it out. Um, they were racing against a clock. The clock was both physical and political because there was both the sense that if it didn't get somewhere where it could face a northern slope in time for the Martian winter, it wouldn't survive. But also if it... Um, if it couldn't keep roving, then its funding would be cut and it also wouldn't survive. So there was this, you know, dramatic and um, really, what's the right word? Not passionate isn't the right one. People were so committed to this robot. I mean, relationships fell apart. People were, you know, crying at their desks. And st- I mean, it was just a really emotionally trying time. And spirit finally went silent and, um, 
they listened for it for, you know, when the, when the season came back around again and it didn't call home again. And so at a certain time, NASA declared it was dead. So I got invited to the robot funeral. And my first question was, what do you wear to a robot funeral? <laughs> I'm packing for this trip to Pasadena going, oh my gosh, what? never been to a robot funeral before. You know, I've been to weddings and I've been to, you know, other other things related to these robot teams, but not a funeral. So do you wear black? I don't know. My biggest mistake was that I took the Kleenex out of my bag <laughs> to make some more space for like cameras and recorders and notebooks. So I was like, this is going to be amazing. I'm going to have to capture everything. And of course I got there and all anyone needed was Kleenex. Um, but one of the things that the, uh, I use that section about the robot funeral in the book to talk about how the scientists themselves assign agency to the robot. And, um, and this is really quite important because the, the majority of the time that, that behind the scenes, when people are talking about the robot, they use the pronoun we, mm-hmm. it's the collective noun. And what I came to realize was that the robot itself was almost something of a totem object for the team. Now, I don't mean that in kind of a spurious way. I actually mean that in a very specific way that um, that Durkheim talks about and really, really classic work in sociology. I mean, you you probably can't go much further back than Durkheim, right? And that is, he talks about how in these sort of tribal-like societies where you have a very mechanical form of, of solidarity, where people are deeply, deeply committed to the organization or to the tribe, um, and it's much more sort of collectivist and a much more um, flattened hierarchy. There may be a high priest or something, but you've basically got a very, very solid uh, a solid group. But they will have these objects or these animals that become totem objects for the team or for the group. And the, the success or the fairing of that object is reflective of the success or fairing of the team and vice versa. And what I started to notice the longer I worked with the rover team was how the concern for the health of the vehicle wasn't just like a technical engineering concern. It wasn't just, you know, what's the solar power today. It was because members of the team had developed this deeply embodied and almost totemic relationship to these robots where the success and failure of the robot was almost metonymic for the um, the success and the consensus orientation of the team by how collaborative and how collective the team could be. And they would express this in ways of like what's good for the robot is what's or what's best for the robot is what we all decide is best for the team. Like we, it's you have to have the complete agreement of the team in order for that robot to be doing good science and for the robot to be healthy and successful. So that kind of relationship was really quite astonishing to see in a like post-industrial scientific technical context. (laughs) But um, it really became one of the primary ways of explaining that embodied relationship to the robot. And crazy things happened that, you know, people, people would talk about um, one scientist described, you know, working in her garden and all of a sudden her right wrist seized up and she couldn't use it and she didn't know why. Well, when she got to the meeting the next day and it turned out that Spirit's right wheel was stuck 
And so she made this like embodied connection between her body on earth and this robot that was millions of miles away. And people did this across the team. It didn't matter their gender. It didn't matter their age. Um, they would get hurt when the robot was hurt. They would be, uh, they would be nervous when the robot was, uh, was threatened by a dust storm or something like that. There was a dust storm in the summer of 2007. Members of the team described it as like your grandmother's in the hospital and you just have to trust that they're going to be okay and the doctors are doing all they can, but you're just on pins needles waiting to figure out what's going on with this robot, right? Mm -hmm. So these um, embodied connections are important for a couple of reasons. On the one hand, um, there's some really interesting work in STS these days about visualization and embodiment. And we know that bodies are important to seeing. And certainly in any context of discussing um, theory-laden observation and representation, the body needs to be an active part of that. And in this case, it's the body, uh, it's how people transform their bodies into the rover's body, to inhabit that body and see what the rover sees, to learn how to take on its sensory apparatus, but also its kind of physical uh, motions and manipulations on the surface of Mars. That's a huge part of learning how to see like a rover. Um, And that's also implicated in the kinds of drawing as that they do, the kinds of representations. Remember I said the maps aren't just like maps of Mars from some like objective perspective. They're maps of where the robot can go that are based on the robot and the team, right? It's not only what the robot can drive to do, it's what the team has decided the robot can drive to do. So all of those things are being bound together in a way of seeing, collectively seeing the Martian surface through the body of the robot. And the robot also becomes a very powerful way. That 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 visual positioning becomes a very powerful way of continuing and maintaining the consensus orientation. So if you start your meetings off with everybody seeing like a rover, looking out at the Martian terrain from between the robot's wheels, you know, being able to see parts of the robot in the foreground that are part of your robotic body on the surface, that's a powerful way of not just, you know, projecting yourself as into some robotic proxy. That's a powerful way of assuring that the collectivity is maintained, of producing continued consensus, of producing um, a sense of complicity among members of the team, that they are all in it together with their robot. And then also this embodied connection with the robot is so many miles away. So that is I mean, sort of a long way of describing that chapter, but I think the main thing is to be able to bring bodies into the conversation and to do so in a way that's organizationally situated. It's not just that people are becoming the robot. It's not just that they're learning how to see like the robot does. It's that they're doing that in an organizational context that kind of requires them to do that in order to participate fully. And um, that's... uh, that's where seeing as and drawing as start to turn into seeing like. And that's where we see the importance of the organization to the way that Mars is being represented and the way that the robot is being used. Great. Thank you. Perfect. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no other questions. No, the, um, you actually, one of the really interesting things that's happening in this chapter when you're describing this is you talk about your own experiences Mm -hmm. in um, sort of having different kinds of embodied feelings when you were working with spirit as opposed to opportunity. Oh, yeah. Um, Right. And and you sort of describe this as um, uh, in your in terms of your own embodiment of what's going on. And I think one of the important things that's happening here as well is um, you're also describing this at one point in this chapter 
in terms of a skill, right? Feeling a robot in one's body is a kind of skill that's acquired. And I think that's a really interesting way of thinking about this. This doesn't just happen. This is a part of the enskillment of what it is to work on one of these teams is feel, feeling like and seeing like. Yeah. You know, what's super interesting about that. And I, I owe a big shout out to Lee Starr for, um, we were having some conversation with her at one point and she was like, you need to write about that. You need to write that it was something that you know how to feel too. Mm-hmm. It's not just something that I saw scientists do or that people talked about. It was something that after about six months with the team, it was this like gradual sensation that kind of crept into your body. And it's true that there's a very different form of stiffness in your in your shoulder that comes from being opportunity. And there's a very specific kind of gait that comes with being like spirit because of how the robots were kind of degrading on the surface. And perhaps the most powerful, um, perhaps the most powerful example of that actually was when the Curiosity rover landed. And I was at the landing um, for that and watching from this big screen in Pasadena. And the first images came down with Curiosity on Mars. And of course it shows the shadow of and the body of the robot in the image. And everyone's like cheering and they're super excited, you know, because the robot has made it. And it was just the most disorienting moment for me (laughs) because for, I mean, curiosity is much taller than spirit and opportunity. So first of all, you're looking out over Mars from like, it's as if you just grew two feet or like put on really big platform shoes or stilts or something. It's sort of like, whoa, (laughs) it reminded me of when, um, I went to Westminster Abbey when I was eight years old, and then I went back when I was 16 years old, and it was like, oh, my God, it was a totally different place, right? <laughs> I thought all these things were huge. It turns out they're small. Um, but also the beefiness of its arm and the, like, the projection of its shadow over the surface, that was not the shadow I was used to seeing. It was not the body I was used to seeing from. And so that kind of perspective change was something um, that I felt in my body and was very, very interesting to observe. So, but again, it's not just a question of like, it's a sort of a touchy feely thing. Um, and this is where the book title, Seeing Like a Rover, comes from something that one of my uh, participants said that once you work with the team for a while, you learn to see like a rover. But it also is reminiscent of Seeing Like a State. Mm-hmm. Right, the book by James Scott, and in Seeing Like a State, he talks about how these different representational forms that come from government agencies, in particular, are ways of imposing a kind of order from the top down on other kinds of publics and societies, and so it's a way of a kind of regimented sort of seeing. But seeing like a rover is is no less a political, a politicized way of seeing, but it's a way of seeing from a position of consensus and collectivity. And yes, it's being produced by a government agency and so on, but when you're behind the scenes with this team, seeing like a rover, being the rover, like having that embodied connection with the robot, producing these images, becoming fluent in how to see these images um, that bind you together with this team is part of producing a collectivist politics on Mars. And that for me is really, um, that's the link between the representational stuff and the just stuff that looks like just drawing as perhaps that's just a theoretical framework and the organizational aspect of it. No, it's not just theoretical. It's practical and it's embedded in a cultural context. Thank you. Um, so we're going to actually get more 
um, oriented toward the politics and the, that aspect of this in a moment. But I just want to sort of briefly mention what's happening in one of the chapters that we won't have a chance to talk substantively about, but that's still really important. So I'm just going to kind of briefly um, gesture at this for listeners so that they know it's here. Now, Chapter 7 um, look, constraints and looky-loo, the limits of interpretation. This gets part of its name from the idea of looky-loo, right? Looking at pictures and making up stories. And this takes us back to one of the issues that you brought up toward the very beginning of our conversation. If images can be manipulated at will, right? And we've just spent um, the conversation and most of the book talking about and learning about all the ways that images um, are created and are, like, that imaging is a form of practice, well, what's to stop them from being evidence of anything? And you talk um, here about the important kinds of constraints that are in place in terms of these imaging practices that do prevent these images from being just evidence of anything. And those constraints include mathematical constraints. They include fieldwork as a kind of constraint, like using particular... Mm -hmm. Um, areas of Earth and Mars as analog sites, and you bring us into um, a really interesting case where some of these issues play out um, in, uh, when we look at home plate again, right, and, and silica centers at home plate. Um, so we won't have too much time to talk about this, but I just wanted to mention for listeners, it's um, there's a really important discussion of constraints and evidence and evidence making that's happening in Chapter 7. So for listeners who are particularly interested in those issues, um, definitely focus on Chapter 7. Seven, it's a good place to be. Thanks. And I should probably mention in case like Andy Pickering and Peter Gallison are listening. <laughs> they had a big fight about the word constraints like 15 years ago or so. And just just to note that the chapter goes in a slightly different direction than that. But they should still read it. <laughs> <laughs> it's very interesting. So just in case. <laughs> I don't want my SDS license revoked. <laughs> no, that's okay. I think you're it right. is an actor's category. I think you're safe. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so this actually brings us um, into politics in a different mm-hmm. kind of way when we um, come into chapter eight. This is the last body chapter of the book, and this is a chapter that looks at the role of rover images as political and also as public tools. There are different kinds of publics at work here, and there are different kinds of political agendas at work here. So one of the things that you bring up here is the concept of the Martian picturesque. So can you maybe bring us into um, part of this chapter by explaining what that is? What is the Martian picturesque and what's important about that in terms of what we've been looking at and and what you've been arguing um, up till now in the book? Great. Well, the the Martian picturesque is actually kind of a riff off of um, some work by Beth Kessler on spacescapes, which she did an amazing book about the Hubble Space Telescope. And she talks about how conventions, like visual conventions from art history on Earth are being applied to these other distant galaxies and things that are not very Earth-like. And it got me thinking about the kinds of visual conventions that were being used on the rover team. And where I really saw an application of Earth-based um, almost art historical principles was in a series of images that get released to the public. And um, they are taken from the rover's position, but you, you very rarely see much of the rover in them. They usually have like wagon wheels you know, heading off into the sunset or something. or It's the wheels of the robot, but it kind of reminds you of those early pictures of the American Wild West, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they have been manipulated in a way that scientists like really wouldn't ever do behind the scenes. And that's in two ways. One is they've been color corrected to what they call approximate true color. And that means 
basically the color that they think you would they think you would see if you were standing there on Mars. Now, no scientist really cares about looking at, at Mars the way that a human eye would see it. That's why they send a robot, because the robot can see into wavelengths that we can't. Um, the robot can detect mineralogical differences through those wavelengths that we can't. And that's the whole point of having these images. You can combine in different sorts of ways and have false color on. But you need to also produce these images for the public that look like what it would look like if a member of the public were standing there in an illegible way particularly for the American public, that make, paints this as an image of exploration. Now, another thing that they do in these images that's quite unusual for the science side, like I, I discussed in a prior chapter how you don't invent pixel values. You, you, you have to stay, you might apply some kind of formula to uh, transform the image, but you have to apply that in, a, in a, a rigorous mathematical way where anyone can reproduce it. Well, in these pictures for the public, they'll often, you know, they'll often change the sky so that it's a uniform color. Now, obviously the sky is like a uniform color on Mars, but the thing is, is that the, because it takes so long to put these pictures together, they're usually panoramas, they usually involve anything from 30 frames to, you know, probably like a hundred of them, I don't know, lots and lots and lots of pictures. And for the robot to take those, pick that many pictures can sometimes take several days, right? So sometimes you're taking pictures in the morning and sometimes you're taking them at night, which means the shadows go in different directions, the sky is a different color and so on. But in producing these images for the public, they'll make it look like you're standing there at a very particular place um, and in kind of a timeless time. If the sky is all one color, they'll take one pixel and apply that to the whole color range for the sky. And they'll, they'll really they'll spend a lot of time on these pictures. And it's not for science. It's for the public. And it's not just for like anyone in the public to look at. It's for being able to... Um, to use the body of the robot for a little bit of a different kind of collective, and that is a, a political appeal for further funding um, for Americans feeling like they are on Mars, that they're exploring Mars alongside these vehicles, um, that they are also in the robot's body, but that body is an adventurous and exciting body, and it would invite them to, you know, much like the early pilgrims, you know, heading out west or whatever it is, that they could also step out onto that Martian soil, like at their get a boot print into that Martian soil. So those images are very specifically geared at this public engagement. And um, they're subject to some quite different processes behind the scenes than the other scientific images are. Now, there are some serious um, ramifications of these images. And you describe one case in particular where public outcry and really the, the kinds of interactions and the kinds of engagement and um, a feeling of... Um, almost being sort of shepherds of being involved in this process that's generated by these very public images on the part of the public brought the spirit back from the brink of political death, right? In 2008, so we have another kind of death here, which is um, not the death uh, that we were talking about um, in an earlier chapter, but here political death. And these, uh, these images and the kind of public engagement that they created were actually crucial in um, averting that kind of political death in 2008. So can you talk a little bit about that as we kind of come to our conclusion here? Sure. I mean, the, so the rovers, when you work on the team, you maybe because of this intense embodied connection or this, this totemic relationship, the rovers are always at risk. Now, this may sound crazy to us because Opportunity has been going for over 4,000 Martian days, right? I mean, surely a team that's been operating for basically 10 years continuously on the surface of another planet should, like, perhaps, you know, maybe be a little blasé about whether or not they're going to live to see another day. 
but they're not. Um, they're constantly paranoid that, you know, the sniper, as they call it, will come and get them, that something will kill them in the night or that the, the rover won't wake up or the rover won't be able to move again or whatever. Alongside the physical death is the sense of political death. There is always a concern that if you're not doing the most sort of boundary-pushing science, um, and particularly as Curiosity came along and kind of, you know, stole some of the spotlight, they have to work really hard to show that they're still doing really valuable work um, with these robots. Because without those robots, the team basically falls apart, right? There's no more team. So the moment in 2008 is a really interesting one. Um, it, and this kind of thing sort of happens repeatedly, but I remember being on site for this. And there was a big kerfuffle at NASA headquarters because uh, Curiosity actually was over budget. And um, what that meant was they needed more money to support the building of Curiosity. The robot hadn't been built yet. It was still in its development phase. And it was at that point supposed to launch in, I think, 2009. Um, so NASA headquarters said to the Mars program at NASA, they were like, look, we, we're not going to support this. You have to manage it within your own budget. Well, of course, the Mars program is responsible for running the Mars rovers, right? Spirit and Opportunity and Curiosity and the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter and a whole bunch of other things on Mars besides. And this was just before Phoenix was going to land too. So like, you know, they have a whole bunch of projects that they're managing. And if Curiosity needed more money, then that meant less money for other robots. So the decision in the Mars office was, well, we'll have to cut the Mars rover budget. And when that decision made it down to the rover team, they were like, we can't operate two rovers on that. We're just going to have to shut one down. And the public outcry was considerable. I mean, they made this announcement, I'm trying to remember what day it was, but it was like, um, it was like they made the announcement on a Monday and <laughs> by Monday afternoon, uh, <laughs> it was on the web. It was on these blog sites. By Monday afternoon, they were like, there is so much traction on this story that, you know, hang tight, basically. But Tuesday morning, um, the, the administrator at NASA stepped in and said, no, 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 you, we're not shutting these robots down. <laughs> we're going to change the decision. And by Wednesday, the administrator who made the decision to keep it within the Mars program's budget resigned. He was just like, I can't, whatever, I can't do this. You're going to come in and tell me how to do my job, right? So, like, literally within 36 hours, um, the public had rallied behind these robots. And one of the reasons why I would argue that's the case is because of these images, because of the Martian picturesque. Um, the Mars community, especially the Mars rovers, were unique in, um, or they were, they were ahead of the curve, actually, in releasing all of their images to the public as soon as they hit the ground. So they have a huge community of Mars enthusiasts or planetary science enthusiasts who work with those images, who do their own manipulations, who are like super excited about exploration. They're a big part of the community that supports this mission. But then more broadly, just people on the internet posting their favorite pictures of spirit. And, you know, there's those like wagon wheels heading off into the distance, right? It's full on March to Martian picturesque. Like no one's looking at the scientific publications, like no one's looking at the false color images. Like, no, it's about this emotional connection and this emotional appeal to the American public that was working. Mm -hmm. It was just working. So, I mean, people ask, you know, are these things really, you know, linked or how is the public really working with these images? I can't answer that because, I mean, I was privileged to be behind the scenes. So I'm going to write about what I saw behind the scenes. I can't tell how it is that the public is, is interacting with these images. But what I do know is that um, I think those images are a huge part of the appeal that keeps this mission um, appealing to the public and it keeps it going, 
keeps it going. So, yeah. <laughs> so as we come to the end of the book, we're now at the conclusion, and we won't have time to talk about everything that's happening in the conclusion, but maybe a good place to end before we um, kind of wrap this up is to go back to something that we talked about at the very beginning, which comes up again. Um, at the very end, and that is the issue of broader implications, right? So this is a study that's meant not just to inform how we understand what's happening um, around the practices um, that have to do with the Mars rover, but it's also meant to speak more broadly to how we understand imaging and representation in the sciences um, as, you know, sort of more broadly conceived. So maybe um, would you bring us home maybe by talking a little bit about that for you? What are some of the broader implications um, that are really important that we perhaps haven't yet talked about um, that might extend well, well beyond the context of the Mars rover science. Yeah, sure. So the big contribution of this book is that it uses the rover team as an opportunity to describe issues that I think are of importance to history of science as well as philosophy of science and um, social studies of science much more broadly. The main contribution has to do with a look at images and representational work, first of all, as a kind of work, but also as an organizationally embedded practice Mm -hmm. and as a practice that um, is busy um, reproducing ways of seeing objects in the world. And that those ways of seeing are both theoretically oriented and practically oriented, and they are organizationally oriented. By theoretically, I mean that they are, they carry, as Narsatina says at one point, they carry the message within themselves. You see the pictures of Tyrone that are in false color, and you see two-toned soil. You see the soil, and then you see it everywhere. They are, um, they are uh, practical in the sense that they are worked with and worked on. They are the place in which people not only make decisions about what their robots are going to do, they're also the place in which people are busy doing the scientific work to identify what's going on on Mars. And then they're organizational in the sense that they are embedded within this collectivist, in this case, collectivist organization. And I would argue that images are always... um, circulating with those three kinds of valences, right? They are, they are practice-based. They are ways of communicating um, a perspective on the world, a way of seeing the world, and a way of representing it. And then they are also, that, that very way of seeing comes from an organizational perspective. I think what, what may help with this is to think about um, how it's changed some of the ways that I think about images in the history of science. You know, I did a bunch of work on the Lavoisier family for a while, and there's these beautiful pictures that Madame Lavoisier, you know, did of the laboratory and the equipment as she was preparing the plates for the Traité Elemental de Chimie. And um, I'd always seen those images in kind of in series. It was at one picture, it was super famous. She's sitting off to the right and she's like drawing and people are having the experiment. I thought some kind of pneumatic experiment is happening over to the left. I'd always seen that as she's sitting there sort of passively recording all the stuff that's going on. But now that I've been in the middle of the action on the rover team, I see those images very differently. You know, who's to say that those images weren't worked over by people? Who's to say that she didn't, you know, draw them and leave them out and have people be like, no, fix this, fix this. What's going on over here? I mean, those images are things that are worked with and worked on constantly in an organizational context. And so, um, I think that's potentially a powerful way of 
reframing the way that we look at imagery, particularly in the history of science. And there's a lot of stuff on beautiful frontispieces and a way of kind of doing a hermeneutic reading of images. And um, there's some really uh, there's some really beautiful work on imagery in the history of science. But I think bringing in this organizational or institutional perspective, and I think also bringing in the um, the relationship between seeing and drawing and seeing and drawing again, right? That iterative relationship. And then possibly also the, the way that that iterative relationship kind of spins off into interactions, right? Seeing, representing, seeing, representing, interacting. Those things come together. Um, I think that could inspire some really exciting directions in the history and in sociology of science in particular. So we're now at the end of our time. We, of course, have... have- you know, just barely uh, skimmed the surface of an extraordinarily rich study, and there's a lot we haven't had a chance to talk about. Is there anything in particular that we didn't talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners? Uh, Sure. There's two things I think that are quite cool. Um, One is that there's a a bunch of... 17th century does make it into this book, actually. (laughs) It did sneak it in. Um, I think one of the most powerful ways of talking about seeing as and drawing as is actually looking at Galileo's images of the moon and how they influenced the way that Harriet then saw and drew the moon. And so there's a way of um, tying this framework again back to could we look at historical images and see similar kinds of relationships. So that's one thing that I think is pretty cool. Um, And the other is that the whole book is in color. Mm-hmm. And uh, I worked really hard with, I really have to give huge thanks to Chicago Press because we worked really hard to make sure that the book was not only in full color, but also affordable. And uh, what that means is that, you know, almost every page there's full color images. And uh, because this is a book about images and it's a book about color, <laughs> right? using the color to see distinctions in the Martian soil. So um, that makes it a very beautiful book, uh, which I highly recommend for if you have this space <laughs> fanatic in your family. Um, but it actually means that the book itself is really quite gorgeous and I'm like, very excited about how it turned out. So now that the book is out, uh, what are you currently working on? What's next for you? Well, I'm uh, working on writing up some of the findings from that second ethnography, which is with a different team. I mean, the question that I came out of the Rover team with was... This is what it's like in a consensus-based team that's collectivist. Uh, what's it like in other places? And so I spend a bunch of time with a, a, another mission that is much more bureaucratic and hierarchical. Um, so they make decisions in a very, very different way. Um, I think nowadays we have a real judgment uh, kind of association with organizations being flat versus being bureaucratic, uh, you know, because everyone's super excited about Silicon Valley. <laughs> For me, there's no judgment call. It's really uh, because these are complicated missions, and you've got to make the decision about how you're going to work or how you're going to work them. Um, so, in this case, it, what I'm trying to show is what the relationship is between the organizational aspects of these missions, the socio-technical organizational aspects of these missions, and then the kinds of science results like you actually get different science if you do get different kinds of results do you get different kinds of data sharing practices based on organizational orientation and uh preliminary findings are showing that yeah you do so (laughs) hang tight because there's more nasa where that came from (laughs) all right well best of luck with that work um and thank you so much for making time to talk with me today the book is great it's beautiful as you've already mentioned and it's really been a pleasure thank you so much carla i really appreciate it You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.